History sometimes seems to move really quickly. On Thursday of this week, President Joe Biden signed a bill designated June 19th a federal holiday, Juneteenth, commemorating the end of slavery in the United States. But Juneteenth itself is actually 155 years old. Originating in Galveston, Texas, it's been celebrated annually on June 19th in various parts of the United States since 1866, a year after the announcement of General Order No. 3 by Union Army General Gordon Granger, proclaiming and enforcing freedom of some 250,000 enslaved people in Texas, the last state of the Confederacy with institutional slavery, and 159 years after the Emancipation Proclamation outlawed slavery in the United States. So for today's show, we're bringing back our show from June of last year, in which Peter Cole, professor of history at Western Illinois University and author of two books on dock workers, Wobblies on the Waterfront and Dock Worker Power, Race and Activism in Durban and the San Francisco Bay Area, talks with Ben Blake and Alan Weirdak about the historic Juneteenth strike by dock workers last year and the long history of dock worker activism. Plus, Arlo Guthrie sings The Ballad of Harry Bridges and Elise Bryant reads Ready to Kill, Carl Sandburg's poem about who should be memorialized in our statues. Happy Juneteenth. Here's the show. The origins of the word strike goes back to the Port of London in 1768 when dock workers and sailors struck. When sailors stop work, they take down the sails of their ship. And that's called nautically uh, striking your sail. And that term becomes a de facto word for all work stoppages in all industries in the English language, right, from then since. That's Peter Cole, professor of history at Western Illinois University and author of two books on dock workers, Wobblies on the Waterfront, and Dock Worker Power, Race and Activism in Durban and the San Francisco Bay Area. Ben Blake and Alan Weirdak talked with Cole this week about the historic Juneteenth strike by dock workers this year and the long history of dock worker activism. But first, every town in America has them, statues and memorials, to people and battles long forgotten, except perhaps by the pigeons who perch on them. But now they've become a focal point of the street protests that have been raging across the country since the killing of George Floyd. Confederate statues are being torn down, tagged with Black Lives Matter graffiti, or officially removed. Recently, protesters tried to pull down the statue of Andrew Jackson, who killed and deported Native Americans. It stands in front of the White House. On this week's Your Rights at Work radio show, we asked Elise Bryant, executive director of the Labor Heritage Foundation and president of the Coalition of Labor Union Women, to read Carl Sandburg's poem, Ready to Kill. Ten minutes now I have been looking at this. I have gone by here before and wondered about it. This is a bronze memorial of a famous general riding horseback with a flag and a sword and a revolver on him. I want to smash the whole thing into a pile of junk to be hauled away to the scrapyard. I put it straight to you. After the farmer, the miner, the shopman, the factory hand, the fireman, and the teamster 
have all been remembered with bronze memorials, shaping them on the job of getting all of us something to eat and something to wear. When they stack a few silhouettes against the sky here in the park and show the real huskies that are doing the work of the world and feeding people instead of butchering them, then maybe I will stand here and look easy at this general of the army holding a flag in the air and riding like hell on horseback, ready to kill anybody that gets in his way, ready to run the red blood, slush the bowels of men all over the sweet new grass of the prairie. Elise Bryant, executive director of the Labor Heritage Foundation and president of the Coalition of Labor Union Women, reading Carl Sandburg's poem, Ready to Kill. Check out the Inventory of American Labor Landmarks, a catalog of sites in the United States commemorating the history and heritage of America's workers at laborheritage.org. Now, here's Ben Blake and Alan Weirdak with their interview of Peter Cole. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another pandemic edition of Cool Things in the Meany Archives. I'm the archive specialist, Alan Weirdak, here with the labor archivist, Ben Blake, who is currently muted because he's dealing with a little bit of landscaping outside of his apartment. So today we are talking about the recent Juneteenth action that the ILWU took um, on the West Coast, where they shut down 29 ports in honor of Juneteenth. We interviewed labor historian Peter Cole, author of Dock Worker Power. Also worth noting is uh, I attended a Labor Notes webinar on workers organizing for Black Lives. And one of the members was Gabriel Prawl of Local 52 for the ILWU in Seattle. And a lot of what Gabriel Prawl talked about is covered in the interview, so I think it's worth mentioning. He talked about the Juneteenth action, and he said that it was the first time in history that the union shut down for Juneteenth. So with that, um, we're going to go ahead and get to the interview with Peter Cole. Ben, do you have anything that you would like to add? I just think the listeners will really enjoy the interview with, with Peter. It's a wide-ranging interview that really provides a historical context for the Juneteenth strike by the ILWU. And I think it also covers a wide range of how historians, particularly labor historians, relate to kind of the ongoing movement and the importance of documenting that and capturing that for future generations. So with that, we're going to get to the interview with Peter Cole. So I guess, should we just go to the uh, Juneteenth action? Sure. I was looking at Angela Davis. I was watching her speech. And she said was that whenever the ILWU takes a stand, the world feels the reverberations. So could you put that into a bit of historical context? She starts with the Japanese internment and brings it all the way up through the recent actions against the murder of George Floyd. But your work goes a little bit before that. Right. So I guess I would agree with Angela Davis. How can I not agree with Angela Davis when it comes to LWU? I I also saw a quote from her saying that if I couldn't have been a professor, I would have loved a worker, warehouse worker. I have actually made that same joke. And so like, she's never been in a room with me. So she didn't hear it from me. She thought of it herself. But it's sort of noteworthy. I mean, the LWU has a long history going back to its birth of being activist and radical 
and militant. And why is that? I think there's a number of reasons. One is the nature of the industry itself, yeah, that, that workers in all industries aren't the same, right? Like their experiences on the job help shape them. And in many countries, in many societies, in many ports, there's a long history of sailors and dock workers being activists meaning to sort of organize collectively, yeah, to um, improve their own lives, to get a raise, to improve their conditions. In the case of the LW being born in the mid-1930s, instantly committing to racial equality. They were not the only union by any means that was making that sort of stand in the 30s as part of a wave of organizing among unions that became part of the new CIO. So it was not unique, but nevertheless... It's the last, with the, uh, along with the United Electrical Workers, of the sort of the so-called left-led unions that were born in the 30s that still stands, right? And UE and ILWU continue to see each other as sort of brothers and sisters, but also that they continue to engage in actions. I mean, going back to even before World War II, when Local 10, which is the local of the ILWU that represents San Francisco Barrier dock workers, refused to load metal aboard a ship intended for Japan in the aftermath of the Japanese invasion of China in 1937, or the expansion, really, of its invasion on mainland Asia. And then in World War II, as you noted from Angela Davis, that in early 1942, that the LW took a principled stand against the internment of Japanese and Japanese Americans, an incredibly unpopular stance at that time. It did not prevent the internment of the Japanese and Japanese Americans, but like noteworthy to sort of take a stand and to really speak out against. And also sort of related to that right after the war, when Japanese Americans were coming out of the camps, a few were being the LW wanted to have hired into or get into a local in the South Bay in Stockton, California. And when the um, local didn't want to accept basically these Japanese Americans in Harry Bridges, the president of the LWU, but who also came out of Local 10, basically took over the charter, suspended it, and said, until you let in a couple Japanese-American guys into the local, which is a warehouse division, you know, you're not in the LWU. And they capitulated. And so at that time, Japanese-Americans were hated by uh, a great many Americans and would be for many decades to come. And so taking conscious stands on principle, even if they don't have the power to make radical change, is noteworthy. Um, I think that does go back to the nature of the work. I think it also goes back to the internationalist nature of shipping, of marine transport, so that often people who work in ports or on ships are interacting with people from around the world on a daily basis. And that People in port cities, and Harry Bridges was originally an Australian immigrant, right, who lived in San Francisco, face outward to the world instead of inward, right? And so even though Chicago is a big city where I am right now, and although it's very diverse, it's not on a really sort of on a border in the same way as San Francisco sitting on the Pacific uh, Rim. We'll be back with the rest of our interview with Peter Cole in just a minute. But first, here's Arlo Guthrie singing The Ballad of Harry Bridges. Take three. Okay. Cameras are gone. Here we go. One, two, one, two, three. Let me tell you of a 
sailor, Harry Bridges is his name. An honest union leader that the bosses tried to frame. He left home in Australia to sail the seas around. Sailed across the ocean to come to Frisco town. There was only a company union then, and the bosses had their way. Us workers had to stand in line for a lousy buck a day. When up spoke Harry Bridges, said us workers must get wise. Our wives and kids will starve to death if we don't get organized. Oh, the FBI is worried and the bosses, they are scared. They can't deport six million men, they know. And we're not gonna let them send Harry over the seas. Fight for Harry Bridges and we'll build the CIO. We built a big bonfire around the Madsen lines that night. We threw their fink books in it and we said we're gonna fight. You've got to pay a living wage or we're gonna take a walk. We told it to the bosses but the bosses wouldn't talk. We said there's only one way left to get that contract signed. And all around the waterfront we threw our picket line. They called it Bloody Thursday, fifth day of July. A hundred men were wounded and two were left to die. Oh, the FBI is worried and the bosses, they are scared. They can't deport six million men, they know. And we're not gonna let them send Harry over the seas. We'll fight for Harry Bridges and we'll build the CIO. So I guess moving, moving from there, one of the things is in your piece for In These Times that was published on June 16th, you talk about this tremendous power and tremendous significance of dock workers, both historically and kind of in this present moment where when the entire coast shuts down, there's a, there's a lot of power to that. Could you put that into a bit more context? Of course. So... The ability, the power of dock workers, and I should say other workers in the supply chain, if they were equally well organized and committed, because it's not unique necessarily, is tremendous, right? And this is widely understood within the industry, both by workers in the industry, as well as by managers and corporate owners and whatnot for centuries, right? That because in this industry, phrases that are familiar to all of us, time is money, and the ship must sail on time, in a way, tell us everything we need to know, right? So it's all, if you can slow things down or stop things from moving, that's costing basically the owner of that ship, the, the company that's rented the pier, that's hiring the workers, that's paying for the warehouse, that's trying to the, get their raw materials or finished goods to a market. That basically is costing them money. And so if you just engage in a um, strategic strike at, uh, without notice or even with notice in order to hold things up, then, then probably the other side is willing to negotiate, right? And so this, like I said, is no secret. It's understood by people throughout the industry and beyond. But I always like to sort of quote um, from the book uh, Many-Headed Hydra by Peter Leinbaugh and Marcus Redeker that the origins of the word strike goes back to the Port of London in 1768 when dock workers and sailors struck. When sailors stop work, they take down the sails of their ship 
and that's called nautically uh, striking your sail. And that term becomes a de facto word for all work stoppages in all industries in the English language, right, from then since, right? And so that tells us the maritime origins in a way of strikes, but also more the centrality of maritime, not just transportation, to capitalism, right, as sort of pivotal to trade. And it also, of course, tells us shipping being central to basically the European conquest of the world, right, in the 15th and 16th centuries and beyond, right? And so shipping is sort of invisible because it's literally happening where you don't live because it's out at sea. But um, those who work in this industry, both on ships and off ship, have tremendous power, right? And even though there's fewer workers now, and even though the technology is different, that power being at a strategic choke point remains the same. And so whether it's striking for a raise or striking on behalf of Black Lives Matter. Definitely. So going right off of that, in the same piece, you have a quote from Clarence Thomas that says dock workers understand capitalism probably better than anybody else. So what is the level of awareness, not just locally in San Francisco, but also globally, transnationally? Right. So in this industry, if the question is, what is the level of awareness of the, the power of dock workers to capitalism or the role that is known globally by port workers. Some are more able than others to sort of work or build upon that, that sort of knowledge. But this industry, both historically and even now, is more heavily unionized than most other industries, right? And so we could be talking about Sydney, Australia. We could be talking about Hamburg, Germany. We could be talking about Lagos, Nigeria. We could be talking about Vancouver, British Columbia, right? Like, it's not coincidence, right? Especially as we know where union rates are so much lower than they were 10, 20, or 40 years ago. Where are there unions? Well, like transportation generally is an important sector that's overrepresented among unions, but also maritime. Not sailors as much. Right? Actually, uh, containerization and for other reasons, really sailors unions were largely crushed. Um, but dockside unions still in many countries exist. That alone actually was sort of shocking, right? But also remain sort of militant. And even to think about the sort of the connections between dock workers, because sailors travel, but dock workers don't, right? It's not just our smartphones that allow us to remain in contact. The, to my knowledge, the first multinational federation of workers was in transportation, right? The, what is now called the International Transport Worker Federation, sometimes called ITF, which is based in the London, England area, was formed in the late 19th century, really to coordinate between English and European continental sailors and dock workers in the late 19th century. It's spread and represents unions on every continent and many countries today. They don't bargain because different countries have different labor law, but the ITF which has a dockers section, well, exists and continues. So 50 years ago, dock workers were less connected to each other. But nowadays, actually, they get together, their leaders do, on an annual basis and more, right? And so when the Juneteenth action happened, right, last Friday, the ITF president, who at this time is an Australian, issued uh, a statement of solidarity with what was happening on the U.S. West Coast. Like, that actually now is normal. Right. So there's good coordination. How does that translate into power, et cetera, is a separate matter, but they're all in very good touch. Right. And that's, I think, important. 
Have you heard of any actions globally, like in response, not just on Juneteenth, but after the murder of George Floyd in other countries, on the docks or off the docks? I mean, we've seen, you know, actions in London, but... No, I haven't. That doesn't mean they haven't happened. For sure. The one that comes to mind is that the Juneteenth action that the LW called, and I shut down, as they say, 29 ports, right, most of which are small, between San Diego in the south and Bellingham, Washington, in the northern part of the continental U.S. on the west coast. But ILW also represents stock workers in British Columbia, and they also actually went out in solidarity with U.S. ILW, right? And so that was unusual because it's, again, a U.S. motivated reason, the killing of George Floyd. And there's a lot of indigenous um, workers in British Columbia and Asian Asian Canadians, but I don't know how many black Canadians work in maritime in British Columbia. There's actually probably some in Newfoundland, but the largest Canadian port other than Vancouver is um, actually Montreal. It's an inland port. But the LW Canada in solidarity with Black Lives Matter and George Floyd's killing also stopped work last Friday, which was impressive, right? Like it was in solidarity with, and they're very close. I mean, they have separate contracts, but LW Canada and US are sort of seamless in their sort of linkages and allies and friendships, et cetera. So I guess thinking of this concept of broader solidarity, but taking it outside of the ILWU, you know, you've seen a lot of unions making blanket statements in support of Black Lives Matter without doing anything significant or concrete. What can an action like this do of shutting down 28 ports down the coast do for other unions that may not have the tremendous power or leverage that dock workers have? Yeah, well, I think many unions have issued statements, which is a start, right? Like, I think that we could remember that the, for all the improvements that many unions could make, some more than others, AFL-CIO, which represents most unions in America, actually is more diverse and inclusive than most other institutions. And so, not to give the AFL-CIO a pass, but Black people are overrepresented in the working class and are overrepresented in the labor movement too, as a percent of union members compared to their total in the population, right? And so, although historically unions were often horrible and exclusionary or segregationist in their practices, some more than others, AFL-CIO in recent decades has made, I think, big strides. It can do more, right? Like not all unions, like you said, have the, the strategic power, let alone the contract language that allows unions to be able to pull off actions of the sort but, you know, Local 10 in the Bay Area within, of the LWU is the only black majority local in the LWU, the Longshore Division. And so, although actually there's a lot of diversity within the LWU, both in its Longshore and Warehouse Divisions, it's not surprising that Local 10 was the one, along with its sort of brothers and sisters in Local 34, which is Clerks in the Bay Area. If you've ever watched The Wire, you know that there's cargo and Clerks too often local in the Right, like uh, it's not surprising at all that it was Local 10 and Local 34 that did this. There was support up and down the coast for it, but it was really driven by. My point being that within the LWU, there's also room for improvement. Right, like uh, Local 10, no doubt could be better too. But Local 8 in Portland, for instance, has a long history of being all white. Although in recent decades, it's become much more diverse. But it was, in a way, the most 
problematic local within the IWU for decades, right? Like in the like 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, right? And LA Long Beach, which is local 13, which is the biggest port, the biggest local, and the most important port in the country. Local 13 also could do better historically as well as presently. So in a way, like what else can, what, what does the LWU show to other unions? Another question related to that is what could other locals within the LWU learn from Local 10? The last thing I'd say about that is that the Juneteenth action shows essentially what workers can do when they have power and when they're committed to a, a cause, right? That a strike like this, even though if it's in a quote-unquote symbolic, shows p- workers what power is, shows workers what collective action is in ways that are very instructive, right? Hard to measure, but nevertheless, I think very real. And well, just like with these George Floyd protests, right? Like what happens in one place has a possibility of actually expanding as others sort of see, and then, you know, uh, take that same action and tactics and sort of uh, passion to their own places, right? And so not that I'm predicting another coast, you know, strike or something of this sort next week, but you know, I think unions everywhere actually see that, and that's significant. But also, non-organized workers see that too, and develop much better impressions, I think, of unions, because so much of the coverage of the Juneteenth actions in the mainstream media has been incredibly positive. Even that, and that's unusual, right? Yeah. Uh, So thinking about the ILWU, but not just in general for social justice movements, but thinking about police brutality specifically, in your book, you draw an example from another historian, Robert Self, in 1947, uh, ILWU Local 6 member um, speaks before the uh, Oakland City Council about police brutality against African Americans. So putting that into a context of like broader solidarity especially because I also understand it that a lot of ILWU locals have it in their bylaws to ban police from membership. Is that a historic thing or is that a recent development? What's been the ILWU's stance locally and nationally on police brutality? Well, presumably by the term itself that we're all opposed, right? Police brutality, who's in favor? But the idea that so for the LWU, their formative moment, their birth, right, is in, in, in 1934 in the so-called big strike, where, although I don't know how many ports, maybe there were fewer, maybe there were more, where basically the West Coast of America is shut down for six weeks, right? Like, it's hard to imagine. Like, one day is actually significant, but like for weeks. Now, during the Depression, of course, trade is down and whatever. But so the big strike of 1934, right? That's, and at that time, San Francisco was the largest port. It was the heart of the strike, even though it's happening up and down from LA up to Seattle, right? Like um, in July 5th, 1934, police in San Francisco kill one striker and one strike supporter, right? And what becomes nicknamed Bloody Thursday, right? There are also four other um, strikers killed up and down the coast in that moment, right? Essentially employers are going enough, enough. They get their allies in the city government to call out their cops. Um, and crack heads, right? Six people killed, right? Bloody Thursday is formative, right? To the union, all those who are in the union, it backfired, right? In San Francisco, it resulted in workers across industries, including union workers, declaring a general strike, right? In San Francisco, in the days after, 
Buddy Thursday, which turned the tide really of the strike. Ultimately, FDR with his cabinet secretary of labor, Frances Perkins, the first female cabinet secretary, the head of the Department of Labor, basically um, pressed the employers to negotiate. Out of that comes, right, this sort of a coastwide contract, union recognition, raises, and more, much more. I talk a little about this in my book, but my book's not really about the 30s, but out of that comes a huge array of victories for workers up and down the coast in the industry. And so it is still a contract holiday for LWU, Bloody Thursday. They, they um, negotiate days off and they choose in conjunction with the management. And so Bloody Thursday, there's a big event in every local in Longshore on July 5th to this day. It's annual, right? And so what is that telling us? We suffered from police brutality. So it's not, you know, if that's part of your creation story, right, it's not a, a far walk to go to go to be sympathetic to other people who have suffered from police brutality, right? Like uh, it's hard boiled into the union, right? That's why it's in a lot of locals' bylaws that the police can't be is because they killed us. Right now in local 10 and local six, local 10 dock workers organized local six warehouse, right? It was after the dock workers were organized. They just essentially went across the street to the warehouses and in the so-called March Inland started to spread this, what now would be called supply chain union, right? Now it's impressive that white militants in Oakland were taking stands against racism in the city of Oakland in the forties. There's a huge increase in black residents in Oakland due to the great migration due to the shipyard, right, that we were talking about, like 200,000 jobs in shipbuilding in, in the Bay Area in World War II. Some of those were black people, men and women, right? And some of those people, though, ended up in warehouse and other things. That LW is very early on speaking out against uh, that. Fast forward to in Local 10, the union was 99% white at creation, but by the mid-60s is majority black, Local 10. I mentioned before the seemingly black majority local, but you know, fast forward into the 21st century, well, in 2010, LW Local 10 stops work to protest the killing of Oscar Grant on New Year's Eve, 2009-10. Um, 2015, on May Day, Local 10 stops work to protest the police killing of a black man in South Carolina who was famously caught on video planting a gun after he had shot in the back a black man and claiming self-defense, but black man actually videoed it and sort of proved that lie, right? Like, and so before 2020 and before Ferguson and before Trayvon Martin, Local 10, in no small part, I think, because it's a black majority local, has uh, been speaking out in the 21st century against racist police killings, right? Um, now there's a lot more people who are also engaged in that issue, but Local 10 specifically, I could also just add one more thing. I mean, back in 1999, Local 10 activists got the entire coast to stop work for a day, similar to the Juneteenth action, to protest the imprisonment of Mumia Abu-Jamal in Pennsylvania on a charge of, uh, well, on a capital punishment charge, right? Like he's maintained his innocence, is a complicated case, but nevertheless, this black, former Black Panther journalist accused of killing a white police officer in Philadelphia, found guilty, um, sentenced to death, but later commuted to life. But in 1999, right, the LWU stopped work for a day and they got the whole coast to sign on to that. That wasn't just a San Francisco action, right? It's not quite police brutality, but it's a case of racism and police actions, right? Like what sympathizers believe is a falsely uh, imprisoned black man to this day in the state of Pennsylvania. So really, LWU has a long history. The last thing I say about that is there are members in the locals within the LWU 
who are activist and educated and educate their other members. So sometimes they coordinate with outside groups and individuals and solidarity actions. But a lot of this is driven from within the union, including the most recent action. It wasn't like people appealed to the LWU. It was people in the LWU who said, we're doing this. Then many people came on board, right? So they are leading as opposed to just joining. Joining is great. But in a number of cases, LWU and Local 10 have led for a long time these sorts of actions. Very unusual, no doubt, but is sort of a glimpse into this invisible world. Drawing on this point about the LWU members knowing their history and being interested in their history, that was another thing I found really interesting in your in these times piece was in your uh, interview with Zach Patton, um, who you describe as a white rank and file activist in ILWU Local 23. You basically said that he proudly recounted some of his history. So in doing a lot of these interviews with the rank and file members, what's the significance of them knowing their history and of labor education, both within the union and outside of the union? Right. Well, the key word of that is activist. Not every member of the LWU knows the history like Zach Patton does, although he's wonderful and he's not alone, right? I'll say, or maybe have two sort of components. One is that not historically, like in the 40s or 50s, but in recent decades, the LWU actually in some of their locals, maybe all their locals, but at least in some, they have education committees where they require new members they have this complicated sort of lengthy process to become fully registered members, have to attend education committee meetings run by a rank and file committee of the education committee. So for instance, Local 10, I've spoken on several occasions to new or younger members, not necessarily age-wise young, but junior members of the LWU who are in a way obligated um, to sort of do this, but that they create systems within their unions to educate their own is impressive. Let me give you a contrasting example. I'm a teacher. I'm a member of the American Federation of Teachers. There is no education committee in my local. (laughs) And I would hazard to bet that in 99.9% of AFT and NEA locals, there is not an education committee. You become a teacher, you happen to be suddenly in this union, right? I was proud to learn that this university, Western Illinois, had an AFT local, right? But that's not why I got a job there, nor why I chose the job. I just got a job. Then I have a choice to join the union. I'm happy to do it. But they didn't then proceed to educate me about my local or my union, even though they're educators, right? Like these dock workers, supposedly, you know, ignorant, less educated people, in fact, are doing better education. Now, some unions do education much better than others, as you both know better than me. But the LWU has relatively good self-education for at least some, especially those who want it, right? The, the last point I'll make is that related to my first, everybody in the LWU, even the majority who don't maybe know the deep history of their union, know who their first president was. And you don't even have to say his whole name. People just refer to him as Harry, right? Harry Bridges. But people don't even have to. If you say Harry in an ILWU local, they know who you're talking about. How many AFT members know the founding president of the AFT was Albert Shanker? I bet 99% don't, right? Like, and it's only because I'm a labor historian that I do, but we got to start somewhere, right? Like, and so that they are educated to be proud. A lot of this actually comes through their bloody Thursday commemorations, but also their other 
parts of their traditions, right? I mean, what do institutions do? They create traditions in order to pass on these uh, ideas and principles, right? I often am uh, sort of accused of glorifying the LW. I'm happy to talk about the warts. But when I have attended Local 10 commemoration events on July 5th at their hall, I, I come away more impressed, right? And then people bring their kids, right? Then they have food and drink and people hang out. So those are beautiful things. Thank you so much, Peter. Awesome. Wonderful. Perfect. Thank you, Peter. Fantastic yeah. interview. Thank you so much. All right. Take care. Yep, you bye. too. All right. Bye. This has been another segment of Cool Things in the Meaning Archives. I'm archive specialist Alan Weirdak here with the labor archivist Ben Blake. Stay strong. Stay safe. Stay healthy. Keep fighting, everyone. Until uh, next time. That's it for this week's edition of Labor History Today. You can subscribe to LHG on your favorite podcast app. Even better, if you like what you hear, please like it in your podcast app and pass it along. You can be part of Labor History Today by reading a labor history item. Just shoot us a note, laborhistorytoday at gmail.com. Labor History Today is produced by the Metro Washington Council's Union City Radio and the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. Alan Weirdak produced the Peter Cole interview. Our music this week was Arlo Guthrie singing the Ballad of Harry Bridges. The Labor History Today team includes Ben Blake, Chloe, Daniel Patrick, Dixon, Leon Fink, Sherry Lincoln, Joe McCartan, Jessica Pozak, and Alan Weirdak. For Labor History Today, this has been Chris Garlock. Thanks so much for listening. Stay safe and healthy, but do keep making history and see you next time.